the night. I am Matt Lazowitz, and welcome to this week's episode of Bat Chat with Matt and Will, a Batman ranking podcast. Where each week, my co-host Will Nevin and I dig into three Batman stories, or in this week, one story told three ways, discuss them, and rank them on our big list, thus creating a giant list of Batman stories from best to worst. How's it going tonight, Will? Matt, I made it clear on Twitter how I was to be introduced. Try it again. I apologize. Good, sir. Let let me get the exact phrasing up. My co-host, Will Nevin, the clown prince of podcasting. That's goddamn better, Matt. (laughs) There we go. I'm all full of piss and vinegar and robins tonight. Yep, I am adding that into the intro that I copy every week, ladies and gents, and folks of non-binary genders, so you don't have to go through me stumbling over myself ever again. But before we get on to robins, we have something important to do today, because the week as we're recording this, we launched the Bat Chat Patreon. And so we have our first Patreon backers to thank. For now, every new backer will get a shout out at the beginning of the show, the week they back, and then everyone will get mentioned at the end, old or new, until that list becomes too unwieldy, when you'll all get that first shout out and then a special anniversary shout out. Backer number one is editor at Comics XF, co-host of WMQ&A, previous guest on this very show, and my best friend of just under 30 years, Dan Grote. Thank Thank you, Dan. And we have a second backer. Thanks to Patreon user, June is dead. Long live June. Thank Thank you, June. June. Long live June. Long live. For this week's story, instead of focusing on villains, as we've done a couple of times now, we're looking into one of the most important Batman allies. Because anyone who says Batman works alone hasn't really read Batman stories. This week's, It's three tellings and or retellings of the origin of Dick Grayson, the very first Robin. This is literally three versions of the same story. It's fascinating to see how similar they are in some places and how different they are in others. And these aren't the only versions of this story. We'll eventually get to some of the others, I think. But we do three, and so I picked three that I thought were the most interesting of the lot and or didn't have another theme they could easily fit in. The most, well, I wouldn't say the most interesting thing about these stories is each one added just a little bit more, right? We expanded the story. And I would say probably our longest story tonight, it's more of a backdrop to ongoing tensions between Dick and Bruce, uh, sort of happier times. But that's a much more complex story, and we are weaving all of these sorts of narratives together, but we'll get to it. Yes. We will fucking get to it. Yep, because we are starting with Robin the Boy Wonder. This is Detective Comics, Volume 1, Number 38, the first appearance of Dick Grayson. The writer is Bill Finger, pencils by Bob Kane, inks by Jerry Robinson. No colorist is credited. Letters are also by Robinson and edited by Whitney Ellsworth. The cover date is April 1940. This issue introduces 
the sensational character find of 1940. Robin, the boy wonder, the sidekick of Batman, who we see join Batman's quest against crime after his parents are murdered by gangsters in the circus that they worked in. That's really about it here, because this is a golden age story and thus is only 10-ish pages long. It's pretty much what you would expect here. I think this is much better than, uh, and we're obviously we're getting ahead of ourselves a little bit, but this is a lot better than Case of the Chemical Syndicate in that we're only a handful of issues in, but this this feels like a real Batman story. It absolutely does. Batman isn't just the shadow in a Batman costume. He's still a little more violent than we would get later, but he's nowhere near as homicidal. He's got a couple of quips in there. He's working with Robin. We are still very much in a pre-Alfred story. Alfred is not introduced for a while from this point. So it's really just Bruce and Dick. And there are still some of that golden age clunkiness to it. But it is a considerably more enjoyable story. And I had, I had two things that I wanted to really talk about with this. The first is totally escaping me at the moment. Maybe, maybe it'll come back to me. But the second is this is a pre-comics code comic. And there was a particular scene in there that, that made me curious. And it's, it's Batman trying to extract a confession from one of our mobsters by dangling acid on the ropes, the, the same method in which the Graysons were killed. And I was curious, and so I decided to look it up in the code because I remember the code got a little wonky with, uh, with torture. And, and this is under the comics code provision, I don't know, 7A or 7B. Scenes of excessive violence shall be prohibited. Scenes of brutal torture, excessive and unnecessary knife and gunplay, physical agony, gory and gruesome crime shall be eliminated. So I suppose threatening a guy with death by pouring acid on the, the thing supporting him is not technically brutal torture. But I like the Hayes Code treatment of, uh, of torture even better. You know, the Hayes Code predating the comics code by about 30 years. The Hayes Code just says special care should be exercised in, quote, third degree methods. <laughs> the, the idea of a film production censorship code isn't old timey enough. We have to say third degree methods. That was uh, an interesting thing on, uh, on torture. I was thinking about uh, Batman absolutely tortures a guy. Oh. And I think on the next page lets a guy die. Yep. I, I have that as a note because he more or less lets Zuko push his henchman off of a half-completed skyscraper so Robin can get a picture of it so they can have Zuko sent to the chair. Aha! We got you on meta now, see? Yeah! See? Oh my god. This Zuko is absolutely Edward G. Robinson. The cigar-chomping 
gangs. We're going to talk about a lot of old movie stuff, I guess, in this one, which I'm good with. I loves me a good film from the golden age of cinema. But wow, I'm reading this and every end of every sentence is change. Say, say. I remembered the point I was going to make. I was really tickled in uh, in this issue how basically Robin infiltrates to the junior league of the mob, yeah. and, and he slowly he slowly works his way up. If we're going to bring down Zuko, we have to start with the newspaper boy racket. Eventually, we'll get there. We'll get to the gambling and the whoring and the uh, and the drugs. But first, we start with the newspaper boys. I love the series of panels where Batman is breaking up all of Zuko's rackets too. It's, it's great. And he's, he's got a couple of quips in there. There's one panel that he's got this smile and it's like, wow, that, that is already a change from the early golden age stories that he, he, he's got a smile in one panel. It's also interesting that as opposed to the other versions we'll read tonight and as far as I can remember, every other version of this story, it's Batman who takes in Dick Grayson in this story, not Bruce. You don't actually see the moment where he finds out that Bruce is Batman. Batman bundles him into the car because Dick is the witness to Zuko threatening the Graysons. So it becomes, well, that is a consistent thing that Dick sees or hears something that lets him know that his parents were murdered or that there was some kind of hijinks of a criminal nature going on. In this particular case, Batman's like, you can't go to the cops because Zuko owns the police. Which, while this story isn't set in Gotham, but is in a small town outside the big city, it's still, that's a very Gotham, very Batman thing to say you don't hear that in metropolis yeah you you don't hear much about metropolis pd generally everything seems to work better there yeah and when when you do see them they're just helping superman maggie sawyer who was on the gcpd for quite a while started out on metropolis pd as the head of their special crimes unit and she was just an ally of superman because superman plays well with others and Bruce, as we will see in especially the next story, he has some problems with the whole playing well with others things at different times in his career. I will say I love that golden age Bruce Wayne always, you know, he has a pipe in his mouth and he's got a hat when he's watching the circus. And it's like, oh, you're, you're, you're really shooting for that Bing Crosby sort of look. Oh, yes. Yeah, we're going to go work the heavy bag, see? And there's a panel, the top right panel on page three is one of the best examples of, oh my God, Golden Age Comics, uh, show don't tell. Because there's narration that says Batman remembers or thinks that this boy reminds him of the death of his own family and then right below it is a word bubble that says you know you remind me of the death of my own family it's like you didn't need both of those there i'm also glad in, in that panel that we did not stick with underlining letters for emphasis underlining words uh, for emphasis and lettering yeah i also have to say well they don't 
quite go out of their way as they did in case of the chemical syndicate. I'm pretty sure Dick kills a guy or two when they're fighting on that skyscraper because he's, he's punching guys on top of this half completed skyscraper and they're falling off. And I, I, I don't think that they probably lived, but since they're not calling it out, I think we can maybe go with GI Joe rules on this one. And they had parachutes or fell onto convenient awnings. And there are bits from this story that continue through Dick taking the pledge on some book in front of the candle. I guess it's supposed to be a Bible, but Bruce never struck me as the swear on the Bible. I mean, swear to me, swear to me. Uh, It's probably, I don't know, Zorro. Yeah, some sort of text on criminology. There's not a ton for us to talk about here beyond that, because, again, this is only 10 pages. It's a golden age story, but it's a much better story than Case of the Chemical Syndicate and much more of a Batman story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is to me, there weren't any surprises in here. No. Aside from, say, the torture and the murder. Um, (laughs) Yeah, there's that. The rest of that was pretty much thematically right for Batman, uh, our contemporary understanding of the character. Fortunately, our other two stories are a little longer, so we'll have a little more meat on their bones to discuss, because I think we've said all we need to on this one, and thus... Time to put it on the board! We have, at this point, 33 stories on our big old list. Number one remains Batman Year One from Batman Volumes, uh, Volume One, numbers 404 to 407. Number 10 is Wonder Woman, the Hikatia. Number 16, right at the middle, is The Secret of the Waiting Graves from Detective Comics 395. Number 20 is Grant Morrison's The Clown at Midnight from Batman Volume 1, number 663. Number 30 is The Case of the Chemical Syndicate, the first Batman story from Detective Comics Volume 1, number 27. And down there at the bottom is Superman and Batman versus Vampires and Werewolves. A duty book. Oh, yes. So we've already said this is better than The Case of the Chemical Syndicate. So top 30, top 30, top 30. I'm not sure how much higher it goes. It's still a pretty elementary story. You might really hate Gotham, I guess. Like, I know. And I I was, I'm going to hold that book against itself until the end of time. I was actually thinking about putting it a couple of spots above that and possibly above the Scarecrow story we did in the previous episode, Scarecrow. weren't good. It no. weren't good. And in a way, this is a big swing book because this is the first sidekick. This is making a fundamental change to a character who had proven a sales success for DC over those first 11, 10, 11 issues. But I mean, Holy Terror is a big old swing. I'm not sure if this quite beats Holy Terror, but I think it does beat Scarecrow. So I think this is probably sliding in at number 
28. Works for me. Okay, so that makes Robin the Boy Wonder from Detective Comics number 38, our new number 28. So our second origin of Dick Grayson is going to be the post-crisis origin of Dick Grayson, Batman Year 3. This one is from Batman Volume 1, numbers 436 to 439. The writer is Marv Wolfman. The pencils are by Pat Broderick, inks by John Beatty, colors by Adrian Roy, letters by John Costanza, edited by Denny O'Neill and Dan Raspler. Cover dates are August and September of 1989. So this was bi-weekly for those two months. We haven't talked about Marv Wolfman yet, and Wolfman doesn't have a ton of Batman credits solo, but Wolfman was one of the really key writers of DC's Bronze Age. He's probably best known for being the writer on Crisis on Infinite Earths and for the new Teen Titans. So he's the guy who created the concept of Dick Grayson as Nightwing with uh, his collaborator, George Perez, who does the covers for all four of these issues. This is the period where Dick and Bruce are very much estranged. Dick is not really a part of the Batman family for the majority of the mid to late 80s through the 90s and only really comes back into Batman's orbit after he leaves the Titans and after Bruce is injured by Bane. So we're sort of at the height of Dick and Bruce not really seeing eye to eye. This story is set after Jason Todd's death in A Death in the Family, the present day parts of this story, and is the story right before A Lonely Place of Dying that will bring Tim Drake into the fold. So Bruce is sort of at his most broken. The plot of this juxtaposes the origin of Dick Grayson, which is pretty much the same as we saw in the earlier story, with Zuko preparing to be released from jail and Bruce slowly unwinding after Jason Todd's death as Dick Grayson returns because Alfred got in touch with him telling him that Bruce was losing it. And we see a Bruce who is dangerously on the edge. This, of all the stories for tonight, is probably the most complex, the most moving parts, the most the most adult, because you have that estrangement, you have that sense of, you know, Dick abandoned me. And you also have basically everyone still grieving Jason to some extent or another. Alfred is a mess. Bruce is a mess. And I think maybe Dick is, Dick is probably also not great, but he is certainly dealing with it better than everybody else. My initial read through maybe the first two issues, I thought this is too long. This is going on too much. But as we got more into, I think, Bruce's grief, the better the story became. Because initially I was like, I don't, I don't care about Zuko. I don't, I don't need to know the backstory of, you know, a murderer. But eventually it made sense. 
And then I think I think issue four is a little padded on like the the mob war and the blackmail. And then and, and, uh, whenever you get into that, you get away from this central bat family drama. But I think on the whole, it's a good read. Yes. Wolfman writes. I mean, he obviously writes a great Dick Grayson because he had at this point been writing Dick monthly for almost a decade. And he had come on Batman just a couple issues before this and will be on Batman for the next year or so. And his Batman is very human, which is important, especially at this point, because we're dealing with a Batman who is dealing with a lot of emotional baggage and is also in places a really good pseudo dad to dick and has is not the lunatic that other people would craft him to be this isn't the batman of dark knight returns there's wonderful moment or i felt it was wonderful where you see the custody hearing for dick and bruce has just it's a three or four panel speech about why it's important he takes dick in and it's really moving it really does have a great bit of character for bruce about understanding what dick is going through and trying to give him what he didn't have and i have some issues with that because I think the continuity is a little wonky there or the characterization because Bruce did have Alfred and Bruce did have Leslie Tompkins who were there for him as much as he would let them be. Now, see, I thought about that too. And there's, there's one line in here that was, I was there for Dick. And this is from Alfred. I was there for Dick. I wish I had been there for Bruce. And what I think that means is I think that means Alfred wishes wishes he was there as Bruce came of age on his training abroad. That's how I interpret it. That's the only way that line made sense to me. But but going back to the the custody hearing, this is the only story of the three that had the space to tell that, to actually explain the legal mechanism of how you take this, you know, the circus orphan and get him to, to, to Gotham's most eligible playboy. The other stories are like, well, he can't stay with the circus, and, uh, oh, here's this guy who just wants to take him in. Or, as we just talked about in, uh, in, in 38, you know, Batman just shows up and is like, the boy's mine. But, I mean, uh, it, it was the 30s. You could just take orphans off the street. I mean, if, how do you think the little rascals happen? <laughs> exactly. You, you take him off the street, you put him in the coal mine, little of this, little of that, it's fine. But I, I did really enjoy that passage for the same reason that you did. It was human. It was some real emotion. And it made sense. And it told the real story. And you can't just let Bruce Wayne have whatever random kid that he wants. Like, there has to be some kind of legal process. So I thought that was important to explain where you had the time to explain it. I'm fairly certain there is a golden age story that does, you know, explain some of that later on, you know, flashing back, but they clearly didn't have time to do that in those initial 10 pages. So there's a lot here. 
there's a lot of watching Bruce just fall apart. He's really at his most violent. He's very much that Frank Miller inspired psycho here, but there's a point to it. It's not just giddy violence. And he still has a line. He is still not a murderer, even though we could reasonably believe at this point he could be a murderer. There is very much that earned cliffhanger at the end of three into four, where Zuko is cut down and Dick says, you let that happen. And he's outraged that you know, he thinks that you know Batman let Zuko walk into this ambush. And Batman says, like, no, like I I hated him. I wanted him to die, but I, I'm I would not have let him die. And that all feels very real because we've seen just the emotional state he's in and his willingness to just wallow in this sort of violence. And two, we have Dick this whole time as he's remembering on his training and going back to the, to the good times. Dick is there to remind us that this is not who Batman is supposed to be. This is Batman who is not well. And, and I wish there was, had been sort of a stronger pushback against Batman because just because you are grieving doesn't mean you can beat the shit out of anyone you want to. Like, right? There has to be some, some lines you don't cross. I, I also thought this, this story was interesting in how in the back half, Batman and the mob basically work together, which is not something we see often. I, the, the thing that reminded me most was Batman's participation in the war of jokes and riddles. And I think the less said about the that, the better. But it was at least analogous in my Wait brain. Wait till we read year two. There's oh, a no. similar theme, a similar bit in year two as well, which struck me as an odd parallel. This is also a very different Zuko than the previous story or the next story. That is a very one-to-one Zuko. This one a, looks completely different. He's much younger. He's much svelter than this sort of portly, cigar-chomping mobster. But he's also much more of a thinking man's mobster versus this traditional Edward G. Robinson figure. He's bookish. He's been keeping this blackmail journal all along, which you, know, you would have thought somebody at some point would have been, wait, you can't write all this shit down. Are you writing down a criminal conspiracy? That, that, that seems a little bit dangerous, you'd think. But, eh, they didn't think about it. And, and nobody has the idea over all of his years in prison to just kill him. He's hidden the journal. If he dies, nobody's going to find... Yes, I guess we should probably make that a little clearer. The MacGuffin of this story is that Zuko kept a journal where he wrote down every criminal thing that he saw for his decades in the Gotham mob that has apparently kept him protected in prison despite the fact that it's hidden and nobody knows where it is. But, but you see, Matt, we all know that a mobster's journal never lies. 
And I got to say, the mobsters, the Gotham mobsters here, they all sound like Fat Tony from The Simpsons. They all have that Joe Montana cadence to the way in which they are speaking. I initially thought it was the Godfather. I'm like, wait, no, no. These guys just all sound like Fat Tony. There's a whole scene in an Italian restaurant, and all of these mobsters are written in this very specific patois. It's the same way if you ever listen to old-time radio, you can always tell when a character is crooked because they always have a certain voice. Even if they're not a mobster out of the gate, it's like, oh, well, that guy's talking like that. He's clearly the bad guy, which, okay, I got to just pull onto Tangent Street for a moment because that is a similar point that a friend of mine, friend of WMQ&A guest, uh, Nathaniel Hubbard, better known as Hub, co-host of Tighten Up the Defense, a podcast about both the Bronze Age Defenders and Bronze Age New Teen Titans has made on his show. There's a point they make when they talk about the New Teen Titans, that the Titans are mostly, with the general exception of Nightwing, really bad at secret identities. <laughs> like Starfire, yes, I am Princess Coriander of Tamarind, but I'm also Coriander's, and I'm disguising myself by putting on sunglasses so people don't see my pupilless green eyes. The fact that I'm a gold-skinned, eight-foot-tall woman, there's plenty of those wandering around. And apparently that's just a Wolfman thing, because at the very end of this story, when the person who's sort of behind a lot of this is beating Dick with a tire iron and Bruce is going to save him, Bruce yells, Dick! As he's going, not Nightwing, not Robin, he screams Dick Grayson's actual name. If that guy hadn't dove off the top of a building to try to grab Zuko's journal that Nightwing had thrown off the top of the tower, and I assume died on the way down, it would have been a pretty one-to-one to figure out who Nightwing really is. You, you want to know some Star Wars trivia? Go for it. And maybe you already know this, because this is the only Star Wars trivia that would tie into this discussion. But you know, after the first Death Star is destroyed, right? Luke flies back into the base. He lands. He opens the, uh, the X-Wing cockpit. You know, you know, he screams out, right? You following me? Yes. Yes. He, he screams out, Carrie. Yep. And and all of Lucas's like changes and fiddling. I have no idea why you would leave that in and tinker with everything else. You got me. It's also an interesting little bit, speaking of those mobsters, that when they're talking about the mob families and even the ones that aren't in play anymore. There's no mention of the Falcons. There's no mention of the Maronis. There's no mention of the Moxons. This was a period where the Gotham mobs were way more nebulous than they are now. And a lot of that will come from a story that we'll actually be discussing next week. We'll get to a little more of a tease of that at the end of this episode. And there's there's another great moment where Dick... Young Dick, flashback Dick, is talking to Alfred, and that Dick is even seeing how much he's impacting Bruce, that he's seeing that Bruce is getting lighter. 
And A, it shows how observant Dick Grayson is, but it also really stresses that point that Batman isn't this lone figure in the dark, that he has this family and he needs this family. Oh, he certainly does. And and I just want to say just a, a few more things about Alfred. Oh, yeah. um, one, he's been making trips to the parole board for 10 years to keep Zuko in prison because I think he's worried about what his release will do for both Dick and Bruce. He is so aggrieved to one, after he learns that Zuko is going to get a release, one, he pulls out a gun and thinks about shooting. And like he, this is really just torn moment and he just can't bring himself to do it. So instead of that, he pulls strings to get a special meeting with Zuko in jail and offers him any amount of money he wants just for Zuko to leave Gotham. That's some interesting desperation on Alfred's part. He, he wants none of this. And two, he's so worried. He, I don't know how much time he, he basically kills and, and to, to work up the nerve to finally tell Dick that Zuko's getting out. But I thought Alfred played a really important part in this story. And when we talk about our next story, I want to get to the emotional beat that I think Alfred should have, but never did in any of these stories. But we'll get to that. Yes. This story also is structured pretty well in the the mystery sense, because the orphanage that both Zuko and Dick were in, the fact that it's being torn down and it's where Zuko hid the journal, is on the first page of this story. It's mentioned in a broadcast on a 24-hour radio news network, which, boy, howdy, sets it in a specific period of time. Despite those still existing, it's very specific. But that is there. And while the fact that both Dick and Zuko were in the same orphanage, and there's some kind of heavy-handed parallelism there, that allows that to make sense and it allows for Dick to figure this stuff out, which is a nice touch. I thought it was, though, a little silly as they start to put the pieces together and they're like, oh, that's why Zuko was in such a rush to get out of prison. He knew the orphanage was going to be torn down. Yeah. Yeah, It seems like it should should be a little bit easier for uh, some connected mobster to get the orphanage saved. Right. Zuko could have, I suppose, had him do, had someone do that in a, I have a, an affection for this place sort of way. Also, did you pick up the first appearance of a major Bat character is in part one of this story. Ooh. If you go to the scenes of Dick before his parents are murdered, there's a mother and father who bring their kid to the circus, and the kid gets a photo taken with the Graysons, and they mention the kid's first name. Oh, is that Tim Drake? That is Tim Drake. That is the I first did, appearance of Tim Drake. That. that will play into the next arc, A Lonely Place of Dying, which fully introduces Tim. And that photo and what Tim saw at the circus is what allows him to put two and two together and deduce Dick and Bruce's identities. That's a great 
little bit of setup for what Wolfman had planned for the next arc. It's also interesting to think about how much has changed in little bits and pieces about Dick Grayson's origins or his ancestry. Because there's a line here where Mary Grayson talks about her father running away to the circus. And in modern storytelling, since probably the early 2000s, it's been established more firmly that his father, John, ran away to the circus. Mary is Roma, and her family had been part of the circus for or circuses for generations. So that's something that over the years has been tinkered with a little. And what what did they do in, it was either Eternal, I guess, Court of Owls, and, and somehow Grayson uh, is an owl? Like, how, yeah. did they, how did they figure that out? There's a whole, the gray son of Gotham, and we'll have to look at that when we look at the Court of Owls, because it always gets a little wonky in my head that William Cobb, who is the Talon, the Cobbs are the Graysons. There's some relation there. It's a whole weird family tree thing. And it it makes me go a little cross-eyed and was always a bit contrived. And also has leads to that whole scene of Bruce punching Dick in the face, which I was never in love with. Partially because I don't think Bruce would hit him. And also because he's Nightwing, he would see the punch coming and be able to duck it. That's that's for another story for a story that I generally quite like, but I think that beat has always been a bit odd to me. Matt firmly against that family violence, generally speaking. Yes, I won't say that there are times where I wish someone would smack Damien upside the head. I mean, Damien has initiated violence against many members of the Bat family, and I'm not particularly in love with that. That's a whole other conversation. Is there? Anything else that you have on this one? Bruce sure does get into costume awfully quick. <laughs> he really does. Generally speaking, the, the intense violence that he is exerting in this story is a bit much. But in issue four on page 10, there's a whole page of him fighting his way through a bunch of mobsters. And one guy gets just a big old kick in the balls. Like, it's a... <gasps> Yeah. How did you feel about the art on this story? Some moments are definitely better than others. I'll say that. The panel of expressions as uh, uh, Dick is watching his parents fall to their deaths is very pained and just bizarre looking. But I think a lot of it is good to great. Yeah, I'm not a huge Broderick fan, but he gets a lot of it right. He has some weird perspective stuff there's the splash page at the beginning of part three has alfred holding the gun and there's some weird force perspective going on with the gun looking much bigger in the foreground which is i guess to make a point but it's just it looks makes the proportions look a bit odd but it's it's not so noticeable as to really draw a ton of attention but i feel like as two guys who tend to read comics for the story, we should really wind up talking about the art a bit more in places. Uh, the previous story is very much Golden Age, Bob Kane. It's what it is. It's, I'm sure, traced off of a lot of other things because that's what Bob Kane did. Bob Kane was a thief. You scoundrel. 
Yep. Uh, but yes, some of the some of the facial expressions, looking especially at that splash you just talked about, some of the facial expressions are just not good. Yeah, like yeah. like Alfred Alfred on this page at the the beginning of open three uh, looks like he's taking shit. It's not it's mm. not a good look. No, but I think that pretty much wraps up our discussion on this story. So time to put it on the board. This is solid middle of the road. It's not top 10 material, but nope. it, all right, let's let's pick a place right there in the middle. Right now, 15, 16, and 17. So the heart of this list are Fear for Sale, the Mike Barr, Alan Davis, Scarecrow story, The Secret of the Waiting Graves, the first Denny O'Neill, Neil Adams story, and super heavy, the Gordon in Bat Bunny armor story. Blah. Blah. How the hell is super heavy 17, Matt? What did uh, we no, do? Number 44. The, ah, that's right. That's that right. One. You got you to you remind me. And again, the Alfred stuff in there is really poignant. I just really edited good. that episode. So that one's pretty fresh in my mind. I, I spent a lot of my Sunday listening to us talk about that and slowly cutting out all the stuff that you all don't need to hear, all the uhs and ums and you knows. An hour long one, one day, one day for people who uh, don't suppo- uh, support us on Patreon, we're going to put out an episode that's just us and ums. Yeah, I, I actually was joking <laughs> about that. I'll put up an unedited episode and you'll hear you know, the hour 15 minutes that y'all hear. It's closer to an hour 30 and I'm not cutting out good content there. I'm cutting out a lot of hemming and hawing, ladies and gents and folks. But here we go. So I, I, I think we could probably put this over super heavy. Yeah, yeah, because this is four issues instead of 18. Yeah, and it does a lot of good character stuff. I don't think I can put it above Fear for Sale. Fear for Sale was a ton of fun. It also does some interesting character stuff with Bruce and his fears and things like that. It is a really nice, compact, single-issue story. And and also has a good Jason Todd stuff in there. Yep. Yeah, and is and the art the Davis art is wonderful. So then the question is, does it go in between Fear for Sale and Secret of the Waiting Graves, or Secret of the Waiting Graves and Super Heavy? I would be inclined to put it above Secret of the Waiting Graves because there is just so much story here, and it is woven together pretty well. I agree. I was going to suggest that. And so we are in agreement. So that makes Batman year three, our new number 16. And now on to our final story of the night, Robin year one, not the mini series that we will get to eventually called Robin year one, but the Robin volume two annual number four. The writer is Chuck Dixon. Pencils by Jason Armstrong, inks by Robert Campanella, colors by Phil Allen, letters by Tim Harkins, edited by Denny O'Neill and Jordan B. Gorfinkel. Cover date is June of 1995. This is from the 1995 annuals that were all year one themed. So for a lot of heroes, this was, well, not untread ground, much more dispersed so 
you got a solid Wonder Woman year one, a solid Wally West as the Flash year one. Batman obviously had already had that treatment. So the main Batman title annuals were all villain centric. And this one was another retelling of Dick Grayson's origin. You've already heard me describe it back in the first story. And this is much more of an adaptation of that story than the stuff that was done in year three. Oh, a moment for problematic creator watch. Oh, I'm ready for this one. Writer. I'm ready for this one. Of this book. Chuck Dixon wrote a gigantic shit ton of bat titles in the 90s and aughts. He wrote Detective from the 640s to 740, 70 issues of Nightwing, 40-something issues of Birds of Prey, 100 issues of Robin, not counting various miniseries. Dixon was always a conservative. Dixon wrote the graphic novel adaptation of the book about the Clinton Foundation and their various fiscal malfeasance, which, whether you believe it or not, is one thing. He wrote various painful Frank Miller-esque things, never released a book called American Power for CrossGen that was going to be basically what if Captain America went to the Middle East and punched Al-Qaeda that was fortunately never released because CrossGen folded and while there were many things that are sad about CrossGen folding the fact that we never saw that book is not one of them I have very mixed feelings because Dixon is not a person I would ever want to be in a room with, but I grew up with his bat books. And while you can still see a lot of that stuff subtextually, O'Neill and various other editors kept it from being textual and made him write a Batman who hated guns. And Dixon is a gun nut. And Batman gave many anti-gun speeches in Dixon's run. There's at least one beat in this book that is very conservative, that the Zuko here is trying to force people to work for the unions, work with the unions that are all mobbed up. Which Those is a, crooked unions. Yeah, which, boy, howdy, if that's not a Republican standpoint, I don't know what is. And... To anyone out there who's offended by us being lefties, you, fuck off. Yeah. You knew what you were getting into. You knew what you were getting into. You can kiss all of my ass, the whole thing. Still, I, I have one thing I want to add about Dixon. The, the thing that, uh, yeah, I obviously didn't grow up reading him, but the thing that it just immediately soured me on any concept of him. This was after the inauguration. You know, the Hollywood Reporter tracks Dixon and the the other Bane artist creator. Graham Nolan. Graham Nolan. Yeah, they do this joint interview with, with the Hollywood Reporter. And they both say like, yeah, we're so psyched that uh, Donald Trump sounded like Bane. Man, what, what great thing that was. And here's a question to Dixon. How are you feeling about President Trump? Were you a supporter during the election? Dixon, I was and am a supporter. 
Trump got my support when he announced during the first GOP debate, when he said to the world that he'd written checks to almost everyone else on that stage at one time or another. You could almost hear the comic book style gulp from all the others. It was a galvanizing moment. I really do think he'll go to work on my dearest political desire to see the federal government shrunk down to a manageable size. Will he succeed? The deck is stacked against him, but it's a noble fight and I wish him the best. And let me say this, this veneer of financial conservatism, what it really means is that I got mine. I'm a white guy. I got mine. Fuck all y'all. And uh, I believe that pretty much sums up his political ideology. And so fuck him. But yeah, trying to put that aside when it comes to his bat books is harder than it used to be. And as I said, I read all of this stuff back in when it first came out in the 90s, when you didn't have any idea of the political leanings of comic book creators, unless they talked about it in Wizard Magazine or their letter pages. And I didn't have that. I didn't realize until many years later that Dixon is not a person that would ever have a meal with me. So I have, uh, it's, it's, it's rough. It's rough, folks. But Dixon wrote Nightwing for a long time. He wrote Robins in general for a very long time. This story is narrated by Dick Grayson, which gives it a different perspective than the previous stories. The first one is an omniscient narrator. And the second, the narration sort of some of it's Dick, some of it's Alfred. This is right from Dick's perspective from page one. It is also a fairly simple story. It takes that first origin story from Detective 38 and expands it from 10 pages to 54. It does add some interesting character beats. It adds an additional crime aspect to the story. And it adds some weirdness with the orphanage that doesn't go some of the places it could have, which is good. But there is definitely a Shawshank vibe to that uh, that orphanage that Dick has put in here. Dick Grayson crawled through three miles of shit and came out clean on the other side. I also really do wonder, there's a hard ass from child services who, you know, takes Dick from the circus. And it kind of makes me raise my eyebrow where she pretty much is like, well, his parents died in Gotham. So we're taking him here. Is that how that works? The Graysons have to have permanent residence somewhere, probably down in that town in Florida where various people from various circuses lived in the off season. So you'd think he would have had to go back there to where he claimed residence or something. But it's a very much like, okay, it happened here. So we're taking him from you. And look, it's been a long time since I had family law. But the the bottom line, the answer to every question in that in that class was best interest of the child. And you know what? I'm pretty sure court would look at this and say, look, these uh, these circus weirdos, they're his family. They love him. They, they're going to take care of him. Sure, that works for us. Give give one of the weirdos custody. 
you'd also think with how dangerous the lives they lived were doing what they do, the Graysons would have had an ironclad will. You'd think, right? Just, or, 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 or the circus would have had a net. Yeah. Or they would have had to take out a massive insurance policy on them, which would have required something to do with the disposition of their sole heir who would inherit all that money. Since we're talking about the circus, I want to say this right now, in contrast to maybe the other two stories, there is such a failure of imagination when imagining the characters at this circus. And, and maybe they didn't want to go in like depictions that would have been problematic, but I figure it's, it's Chuck Dixon. He can't give, possibly give a shit, right? These are just like people, right? The uh, page seven where you get basically the Gotham hard ass talking to everybody. Like you have someone, you have an overweight woman, a clown, you know, the MC, a guy with long arms, a guy who looks like a strong man a little person like these characters are not all that colorful to me for a circus. It was a pretty quick sort of let's shorthand these characters because I have an interest. I don't really have any interest in writing these people. Wolfman also spent more time with them because they'll come up again in an issue of new teen Titans that comes out a month or so after that story. Because part of A Lonely Place of Dying, which we're talking about a lot here, and we will get to reading eventually in a Tim Drake-centric episode that I want to do because Tim Drake is the greatest of all Robins. But there's a story that's a mystery set at the circus that's part of that with Dick and Tim. And so he was seeding those characters in the same way he was seeding Tim in year three. Amazing what you can do when you can think ahead and you're you're thinking more than just like, ooh, what's... What's just a character I could just introduce for no reason? Yeah. I can't, I can't believe that, that people like Ghostmaker. I, that's, man, that's, if, if you're listening to this and you're reading the current Batman run and you're like, man, Ghostmaker is so cool. I'm not saying you're wrong. I just want to know what's going on in your brain. I like what, what process, what thinking gets you to that point? Because I find it to be fascinating. Yeah, you, you, you know, we're of one mind on Ghostmaker. Uh, I've come around on a lot of the characters from that run. Still don't get Ghostmaker. Still gaining acceptance. I will say that, that that's right. Ghostmaker is the Dan Quayle of Batman characters. I'm going to stand by that. Oh, boy. Bruce is very different in this story than in the previous one. The Wolfman's Bruce is there to, you know, he's he's greeting Dick. He's talking to him here. Bruce is very much in Playboy Bruce Wayne mode. He's just like, oh, I'm, oh, I'm with this supermodel. It's like, how's it going? I'm, I'm working out on this exercise bike. He doesn't show the same affection for Dick and the same interest that he does here that he did in year three, initially, at least. And Alfred is much colder in this story and much more doubtful, which I'm not in love with. All right. So here's the moment that I I alluded to earlier. This comes on page 32, where Alfred, you know, drops the tray of breakfast in shock that Bruce is so willing to, to give away the secret identity. 
It's like, oh, uh, you know, Master Bruce, we've worked so hard to keep this distasteful charade a secret. What I would want to see in a modern day retelling of the, the Robin Dick Grayson origin story, I would want to see Alfred say, what the fuck are you doing? Are you trying to get this kid murdered? This is insanity. This is dangerous. I don't care how you feel about it. You are involving a child in an inherently dangerous activity. And this, this is wrong. This is morally wrong. That's the depth you can't have in Detective Comics 38. And that's, that's why that's, that's kind of a central problem that we just have to ignore in this story. And that's why basically Damian Wayne has to be a trained assassin. That's the only way you could put a child in that position if it's basically a superpowered child. But Dick Grayson is not that. He is just a kid who can, you know, do some circus uh, acrobatics. So Dixon almost got there. And I think the right emotion is not surprise at Bruce giving away his identity. It should be horror that Bruce is involving a child here. And, and I think we could have done it. I, we could have done it. Like, right, you couldn't have maybe spent all of the necessary time on that. You couldn't have really done that kind of full examination because, like I said, the whole idea falls apart once you start to seriously inquire into it. But it's almost right. Almost. How familiar are you with Leslie Tompkins as a character? Bits and pieces, right? I, I think the the stuff that sticks out most in my brain is uh, animated series, but only because that's voiced by the same woman who did uh, Dr. Polanski on uh, Next Gen. Yep. Diane Muldoor. We will get to some Leslie Tompkins. I love the character of Leslie Tompkins. I think she's a fascinating character to exist in a superhero universe. A confirmed pacifist is a real interesting character for that. And that is something that Leslie says on a regular basis. What are you doing bringing children into this world? She is the voice of that. And it is a way that they nearly destroy the character at one point, but we will war crimes the follow-up to war games that is another story for the jason todd tier oh no that oh my god i that story makes me physically ill in what they do to leslie tompkins as a character in that story it enrages me Okay, but, but, <laughs> but yes, no, that is that's a valid point. That is an a beat that is something that should be addressed. Yeah, I, I'm not sure how much more there is on this particular story because again, it's pretty much Detective 38 padded out with an additional. Oh, Zuko had an inside man in the circus. The art here from Jason Armstrong is a little more cartoony than what we're kind of used to, but for Dick Grayson's stories, someone who is fluid, who draws these sort of really bold, dynamic characters with big movement is something that is kind of important since Dick is an acrobat. There needs to be a fluidity in a good 
Dick Grayson Robbins slash Nightwing story that's important. I like the uh, the heavy inks here. I was a big mm. fan of that. Yeah. I mean, do you have anything else? There's it it saddens me that this story is is so readable and enjoyable from from Dixon. It's a bummer. You're gonna run into that a lot. Dixon's stories go down real easy, but you you scratch the surface and there's a lot underneath there that I mean, I wouldn't have noticed that unions thing the first time going through, but now it was like that jumped out at me like a sore thumb. Nah, you're going to use union labor, see? You're going to pay all those union bums, and they're going to have breaks and worker safety, see? And collective bargaining rights, see? Terrible. America wasn't founded on that. America was founded on Pinkerton agents breaking unions. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh. Oh, oh, and uh, I, I, the one thing I don't I, maybe we uh, we haven't gone over, but in uh, in a cousin to Shark Watch, Lion Beat, uh, with uh, with uh, no no Tiger Beat, Tiger Beat, Tiger Beat. I apologize, I apologize. That dastardly Rutledge getting getting eat to death. The trick with Tiger Beat is that you're gonna run into Catwoman stories where there's all sorts of big cats. You, you you've got a, a hook there. There's a definite hook for big cats in Batman stories and Catman stories for that matter. Oh, there, there was also a moment that was very much, I had to be an intentional nod to Batman 89 where Dick's first meal at Wayne Manor is him sitting at one end of a big long table and Bruce at the other end and being served food that no 12 year old boy would ever want to eat. It's like something with quail eggs. It's like, why in the world? Alfred, you know, you, you make the kid grilled cheese. You make him chicken nuggets. He's a 12-year-old. Give the man some tendies. Yeah. Uh, hey, hey, okay. All right. Let, let's, let's be fair. Baby lambs with shallots and a brie sauce. Okay. No quail eggs. <laughs> right? I mean... Lamb, lamb is good eats. It is. Yeah, but again, you, you describe that to most 12-year-olds. They're going to be like, can I get a burger? I want my nugs. Greatest, one of the greatest scenes. I think it, 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 it might be Tom King. It was, I think it was King. It was either King or Snyder. The various Robins and Bruce go out to a burger joint and Bruce that is was eating. King. It was, he's eating a burger with a knife and fork because he was raised by Alfred. Okay, that's pretty great. I, I got to give credit there. That's, that's, that's fun. Yeah, that's they were at the, the Batman-themed restaurant. Yeah. Yep. That's a fun moment. One other thing, and it's one that Alfred mentioning that part of why Bruce took Dick Grayson in is he doesn't have, he doesn't have any friends, and he still feels like he's a child, so he's taking Dick in to be a friend. It's like, I hate that stunted growth argument for Batman. I just hate it when anybody makes it. And I especially hate it when it shows up in comics. It's one of those awful bad faith Batman arguments. And I just don't like it. I'm trying to think. Stunted is the wrong word. There's there's some kind of though emotional deficiency. I, oh, I think we could agree there. Absolutely. But he's not. He's not a man child. Right. That's what's of the, that he's still an eight year old trapped in this, you know, adult body. It's like, no, no, he has matured in many ways. 
his feelings about death are clearly broken. But and that's that's why I really hated speeding bullets because that that Bruce was so stunted and so childlike. Yes, that is a Bruce who was very much a man child. But the Bruce who traveled the world, who did all those things, had to mature to some degree. And he's listen, I've known plenty of adults who have all kinds of emotional baggage. Hell, I'm an adult with plenty of emotional baggage. So you, you gotta hey, 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 we're doing a Batman podcast. We're totally functioning normal adult men here. Uh yo, know, yeah, absolutely. Okay, but we've done our due diligence on this one. Time to put it on the board. This one falls in between the other two stories. Yeah, like I said, as I was reading year three, I was like, eh, it's too long. I think I like the other one better. I eventually came around on it. So, yeah, I'm, year- I, I got to go with year three being the winner for tonight. Year three has more emotional weight to it. Yeah. And I think absolutely. that's what gives it a win. I'm not sure how much better. I mean, I still... Is it right below year three? Secret of the Waiting Graves is a trifle. Secret of the Waiting Graves doesn't have a lot to it other than it's fun. Super Heavy has one really strong issue. Judgment on Gotham is batshit insane and fun. This, I mean, you don't really get, I mean, at this point, I think Robin the Boy Wonder, Detective 38, is now the bottom of the, this is still a comic that is not a fundamentally flawed comic level. Everything below Robin the Boy Wonder has within it some fundamental flaw or another. This is not that. This is well above fundamentally flawed. Yeah, yeah. Again, it it goes down real smooth. Yeah, I would be inclined to make this uh, 17. Yeah, yeah, because it's it does it has some great character stuff for Dick. It's enjoyable. Okay, so that that puts it right below Batman Year Three. So it is number seventeen. Wow. So there we go. Uh, three of the now that it occurs to me, at least six versions of the origin of Dick Grayson. They they, they keep coming. Next week, well, two weeks ago, we talked about a villain. This week, we talked about a hero. Next week, it's time for someone who's half and half. We're going to be talking about three Two-Face stories. Ooh, that's, that's six stories. We'd like to once again thank our Patreon backers, Dan Grote and June is Dead. Long live June for their support. You can follow the podcast on Twitter at BatChatComics. And the show is now available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and on Comics XF. And you can support the podcast on Patreon, where you can get shout-outs, bonus content, pick a story, and even come on the show. Oh, and- we'd love to have you, but only if you pay us money. Or, or you're one of our friends. If you want to hear more of my ramblings, mostly about the three C's, comics, cinema, and cats, 
You can follow me on Twitter at MattLaz1013. And I'm at Will Nevin. And be sure to visit ComicsXF at ComicsXF.com or at ComicsXF on Twitter for our weekly Friday Bat Chat roundup of new Bat books. For my other show, WMQ&A, where my longtime best friend and Patreon supporter, Dan Grote, and I interview comics creators, retailers, publishers, journalists, and other related tradespeople, as well as all the other things that Will and I are writing. Thanks, as ever, for another good night, Will. And to you, sir. And stay safe out there, folks. Gotham is not a place to be after dark.